All right, we'll start in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? All right. I know we talked about some of these verses last week, but I want to point out just a few things, and I want to read this, this article that I found. And like I mentioned earlier, that I wish I found this article two weeks ago, so I could have read it and read some other writings of this individual, and so we, I could have more to give you, but as it is, I will read you a couple paragraphs after that. All right, Redemption. What's the word redemption mean? What's the root word? Redeem. redeem. What does redeem mean? Like Restore. Buy back. Buy back. Restore. Okay? So if we've been redeemed, and the way it's used biblically, that implies both forgiveness of sins and a deliverance of the penalty of sin. In this case, the penalty of sin being death. And what was the price that was paid for our redemption? There was a price paid. What was that price? The death of whom? By Jesus. Christ. By Jesus. There we go. Okay. All right. <clears throat> the verses we read talk about Christ offering up himself. All right. Somebody look up John chapter 10 and read verses 15 through 18 for me, please. If you see me limping, it's because I am limping. Hold my back. <laughs> Getting old is awesome. That's the alternative to a point. Of that is true. John 10, 15 through 18, you said? Correct. <clears throat> Verse 15. Just as, the, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Right. So what does Jesus really want his disciples to understand in that passage. What is he saying he's going to do and what is he saying is going to happen afterwards? He is foreshadowing something. His death and resurrection. Yeah. His death and resurrection. Now, who does he say who is, who is making him do this? He's doing it on accord. Now, other passages say that God the Father mm -hmm. did this. So which one's right? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. That is the proper answer. The proper answer is yes. 
So in John 10, 15 through 18, and here in Hebrews 9, 14, Christ offered himself. He willingly went to the cross as an act of obedience. He willingly shed his blood. What did he say at the Lord's Supper when he had the cup and he gave it to the disciples? What did he say about that? This is my blood, blood of the covenant. new covenant. New covenant. Okay? So Christ is freely offering his blood. Now, the idea of him offering this blood to initiate the new covenant. Does anybody remember what we spoke about last week? How was the old covenant inaugurated? What did Moses do? After the tent's built, all the furniture is built, they have the Ten Commandments, it's time to inaugurate this, this old covenant. Well, it wasn't old, it was the new one at the time. <laughs> yeah. The Mosaic Covenant. <coughs> How did he inaugurate it? What did he do? Anybody remember? He sacrificed Yes. Yes. He took that little hyssop plant with wool. He dipped it in the blood. He slung it over everything. He slung it on the people. Everything was not covered in blood. And in the same way, after Christ died, where did he enter into? Yeah. Yeah. Which is the holy thing? But where is it located? Behind the, heaven. the curtain of the, of the, the one located in heaven. He went behind the curtain of the temple in heaven, which is God's presence. And he didn't bring the blood of bulls and goats, but what blood did he bring? His own, okay, his own blood. So you have this, this blood is a big deal. And we've talked about it for several weeks now. The blood of Christ is a very, very big deal. All right, in verses 13 and 14, do you see the Trinity there? I shall read that again. Yeah, Christ, Spirit, and God. Excellent. Right there. Christ, Spirit, and God. Christ, um, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God? So that is why when I asked you, did Christ go on his own accord to the cross, or did the Father make him? The answer is yes, because of the doctrine of the Trinity. So this blood is a big deal. Jesus took his blood behind the curtain. Jesus purified the new tabernacle with his blood. Is the blood of Christ a big deal, yes or no? Yes. Okay, now I'm going to read this article. If I don't accidentally close it again. <clears throat> so let's see how big of a deal this is. So the question he says, why did Jesus die? And this is by a guy named John Meyer, M-Y-E-R-S, Myers. I'll find the exact starting point. I had it open and then it closed when my phone locked. Here we go. There are numerous reasons Jesus died. One was to put death to death. Would you agree with that? Death was put to death. Yep. Another was to defeat sin and the devil. Would you agree with that? But one reason I want to focus on here is that Jesus wanted to expose the lie of the scapegoat, the religious lie that an innocent victim must die for sin. 
To put it bluntly, Jesus died to expose religion as a big, fat, satanic lie. Is anyone a bit concerned at this moment? Grievously. Okay. In his death, Jesus put to death the religious requirement of death. In his death, Jesus exposed the emptiness of the sacrificial system for what it was. Okay, so the sacrificial system. What system is he talking about? The offerings. Under what? The Old Covenant. Okay, under the Old Covenant. So, Jesus exposed the emptiness of the sacrificial system for what it was. And he's about to tell you what that old, the Mosaic Covenant was. All the sacrifices under it. Now, who ordained the sacrificial system that Moses and Aaron started back in Exodus. Was that Moses and Aaron that started? And they say, hey, I got a great idea. Who started that? Okay, God did. It is spelled out in Leviticus in detail, reiterated in Deuteronomy. And if you believe all of God's word is the inspired word, that old covenant was issued by God. Let's look in uh, Galatians. And look in chapter 3, verse 23. We've read this before, and it's worth bringing back up again. Uh, this is Paul speaking. Uh, we mentioned in the past that Paul is used a lot to bash the Old Covenant. Um, the Old Covenant was not a bad thing. There was nothing, there was nothing wrong with the God who gave the covenant. Where was the fault in the Old Covenant? Does anybody remember where we discussed this? Was the fault with the covenant itself, or was it with the people who, it was with the people, okay? So listen, this is Paul speaking. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ became, or until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So how is the, guard, um, how is the law defined by Paul right there? A guardian. A guardian. Right? So keep that in mind. The Old Testament, the, the Mosaic Covenant, all that that it involved was described as a guardian. It had a purpose. Right? So how does, according to this article, how should we see the sacrificial system? It was a form of satanic enslavement by which humans think that they are appeasing God for that which he has already forgiven them for. That, that's a bold claim to say the religious practices that were ordained by God under the Mosaic Covenant were, and I quote, a form of satanic enslavement. Religion says God is angry with you but will forgive you if you do great things for him and offer valuable things to him. By going to the cross under the condemnation of religion and then being raised to life again, Jesus exposed the powerful and satanic lie of religion. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus announced loud and clear that God, now listen to this, is not angry at sin. 
and that just as sin, death, and the devil have no hold on God, they have no hold on us either. He repeats, God is not angry at sin. Is this one of those uh, he gets us Christians? No. This, this was written six years ago. So it's before that the he gets us came out. He goes on to say that the blood of Christ doesn't cleanse anybody from sin. Well, th that would be highly problematic, and we can all free up about six hours of our week if that were actually yeah. true, which it's not. So here are some verses that, that we need to look at. I mean, it's, it's all through Hebrews. We don't, we don't need to reteach all the book of Hebrews again that talks over and over about Christ shedding his blood and strengthening it and starting the new covenant again. Somebody read Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25 for me. Somebody read Romans 5, 9, Ephesians 1, 7, and Colossians 1, 20. Can you even read those in the back? I left my markers at home and had to use the back. <laughs> All right, so who wants to read Romans for me? Okay, my wife got it. Who wants to read Romans 5, 9? Okay, Ephesians 1, 7. Who wants to read Colossians 1, 20? Back there, excellent. Make sure you read loud enough for the recorder way up here to get you. All right, let's start with Romans 3, 24, and 25. Remember, the whole sacrifice, uh, sacrificial system was a satanic lie. The blood of Christ was not necessary to forgive, to forgive us of our sins. Very problematic. All right, Romans 3, verses 24 and 25. It starts in the middle of a sentence. So, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Okay. Christ was put forth as a propitiation. What does that word mean? A pro propitiation. Y'all heard vicarious, penal, substitutionary, Propitiation, you've heard these words? What's propitiation? Payment. What's that? It's a payment. A payment. And the rest of that article talks about how the idea that God requires payment in order to get to give forgiveness means it's not free. The word propitiation means a payment, and, it, and the vicarious means on someone else's behalf. A substitutionary means on someone else's behalf. He's he's being very very he's being very very flexible about how he defines free. All right, and so like free salvation, forgiveness of sin is a free gift from for us from our perspective. Mm -hmm. But we would say that it has been the reason why it's free for us is that it's already been paid for. Exactly, and he would say God is so loving he would never require death for anything. That is a pagan influence on Christianity that should be rooted out. And so, uh, he he would, which means that <clears throat> you can't arrive at that conclusion without dis discarding humongous tracts of scripture. I mean, just mm -hmm. humongous. Going all the way back to, I mean, well, before, going all the way back to Genesis three when God killed the animal to clothe to cover mm -hmm. Adam, Adam and Eve. But you know, the inauguration of the, of the Abrahamic covenant, God walks between the between the, mm -hmm. the the parted animals. You know, it. It has always been blood. Always. It, Christianity is a bloody religion. And anything that 
takes away the importance of the blood of Christ is is bad, to use my expansive vocabulary. It's bad. All right, Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So we're saved by his blood from God's wrath. Yes. But God doesn't get angry. God is angry. God is angry at sin. (laughs) He is angry at sin. All right, Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Forgiveness through his blood. All right, Colossians 1, 20. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Okay, peace through the blood. If peace was made, what existed before the peace was made? Hostility. Hostility. The Bible, the King James is enmity. Well, I, I was kind of thinking of a scripture from 1 Corinthians 15 from Sunday school class. Mm-hmm. It's not word for word, but at one point Paul's saying, you know, if Christ didn't die on the cross, then you know, all of this is a lie, then we're the ones to be pitied. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and this guy, uh, Myers, would say that Christ died to conquer death. But Christ's death was not necessary for our forgiveness. The shedding of the blood was not necessary. God is, God is forgiving. It, it, it's no brainer. Right. That's putting it very mildly, but you're right. You're <laughs> right. You're right. You're right. <clears throat> clear. Oh, I'm in Galatians. That's why it doesn't make any sense. All right, back to the <laughs> Hebrews. <laughs> yeah, any more thoughts on that? Because, I mean, teaching all through Hebrews, covenants, blood, over and over come up, and the necessity of it, and then to read an article where it's saying, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That's not what it really means. How else can you say it? <laughs> How else can you, what else could he have done to possibly say, without the shedding of the blood, there is no remission of sins? All right, so back to Hebrews chapter 9. I mean, you, you, the, you, you're disregarding Isaiah 9, 3 in the Old Testament. You're disregarding in just humongous tracts of, of the Bible, which is mm-hmm. all scripture inspired by God, beneficial, um, teaching people, you know the prayer. Yes. You, you're just disregarding a whole bunch of stuff. And if you build the theology on what some dude named Jeremy thinks, not scripture, you're unlikely to prosper in eternity. Does he have any, like, does he use any scriptures to, like, back up his? Um, I'm just, you'd be very interested to see, like, where did you, how did you get here? Not really. In the one podcast that I used, he focused on um, the account of the Last Supper as found in Matthew. And he really wanted to focus on the Greek word there, uh, where it says, I, I, here's the blood of my covenant um, for the forgiveness of sins. The word forgiveness there is this Greek word. I'm going to say it incorrectly, so I'm not going to try. And when it's used, that Greek word, it means this. Okay, well, if you're going to do that, show me everywhere. Like, I wanted a detailed, like, if you're going to challenge something that's been orthodox for 1,800 and whatever years, 
over 2,000, no, not over <laughs> two, two, yeah, I guess over 2,000 years, yeah. then you really need to, to do more than just one verse and then use your logic and rationale. So, all right. Um, verse 14, um, how much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works, and then to what? So we're saying, or purified from dead works to something else. What's that to something else? Serve the living God. To serve the living God. And the word serve there, um, it also means worship. It's the same word. So service and worship are closely tied together right there. Um, I'll read from this book here. This is my ESV expository commentary. It says that we can now serve the living God in his most holy place is implied by our, by our author's use of the worship-related verb serve and the noun form of that and is used to describe the priest activities in the tabernacle. So the words that are used to describe the priest acts of service when they're in the tent the lighting of the incense on the altar of incense, the changing of the bread on the table of showbread, the lighting of the candle, the menorah, all of that stuff is that word service. And that word service for how the priest serve is applied for us to worship God. Service and worship are the same word. All right, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2. So that word service can also is same as worship, and worship is service, and it's all related to how the priests serve in the temple. Let's start First um, Peter chapter two. Let's start in verse four. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ for it stands in scripture behold I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame so if we are the spiritual house which of course relates to the tabernacle and we are now a holy priesthood and what are we supposed to offer Sacrifice. Spiritual sacrifices. And we're going to look a little bit as, as to what that is. But it's saying like, we're now the priest. We are serving slash worshiping God because that old priestly system under the old covenant, it's gone away. All right, verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
So we are now a royal priesthood. We're supposed to offer up spiritual sacrifices. So let's see what that is. Let's turn. So you should have written somewhere in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 25 and 8. Write down Romans 12, 1. And then let's turn to Romans 12, 1. This is one of those verses I remember from um, Bible drill. Anybody do Bible drill way back in the day? All right, so here's Paul speaking. You heard from Peter. Now let's hear from Paul. Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If you have the nasty, it says your spiritual service of worship, because that word service and worship are the same word. So when you talk about worshiping God, it's easy to say, okay, I'm singing songs, I'm, I'm playing my instrument. But serving God is just as much part of that. Say, yes, you're singing songs, that's great, but how, is, how are you serving God? How are you presenting your body as a sacrifice? So what does it look like to present your bodies as a sacrifice? Like what? Pragmatically, how do we do that? Because apparently it's pretty important. <laughs> You're talking about an Abraham Isaac situation on Mount Moriah? Like Pray the Lord no. <laughs> so your kid asks you, Mommy, Daddy, how do I present my body as a living sacrifice? Because I've memorized Romans 12, 1 and Awana. Mommy, Daddy, how do you present your body as a living sacrifice? That'd be a hard question. That'd be a harder one. Yeah. So what would that look like? Well, the next verse after that says, "Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind." So, not going into places of sinning. Okay. Uh -huh. In a way. <laughs> if. Let's flesh that out a bit. If I'm being transformed, if my mind, my priorities are changed by the Holy Spirit working through me, does that always remove the temptation to do what I used to do? No. Okay. So, would part of sacrificing, giving up things that you enjoy, giving up things that you like, and sometimes if you're looking to serve God, you're going to find yourself giving up your time, your money, your resources, your talents. And that can be hard. Sometimes that, that can be wearisome at times. And anyone who tells you otherwise is, is lying to you. Okay? It, it can be very tough to be in ministry. It can be emotionally taxing on people. I'm sure some of the things that pastors have to deal with when it comes to counseling, um, when it comes to the, the issues that they hear people deal with, is emotionally and spiritually taxing. Yet they are freely giving of themselves because that's how they see God calling them. Anybody else? It's just 
everyday life choosing to think about things the way God would, the way I approach people, the way I approach the decisions I make. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is a it is a daily it's a daily sacrifice um, to focus on, and it, it takes time and it takes work to think the way God would have mm-hmm. me to think about everything, yeah. including Take, this one. Take captive every thought. Mm-hmm. Like when I was driving down Mer- uh, McPherson Road the other day, and a group of teenagers in dirt bikes and four-wheelers were popping wheelies in front of me, making me slam on the brakes. Oh, those are adults. Those and, are and, I just, and I just, you know, kind of visualized going, oops. Yes, no, I had to take that thought captive. No, Lord, this is a person made in your image. Though what they're doing ticks me off, they need you. That don't work up what we're talking about. That frustrating. She's heard the story like 40 times. She has. <laughs> so we're not just sacrificing goats and bulls and calves anymore, because that's easy. But when you have to sacrifice of your, your time, resources, your, your energy, that's much more difficult than take that one. Sacrifice that, that goat over there. That, that's, a, that's a nice goat. I mean, it's a small financial setback for me, but whatever. Making your body living sacrifice, that's much more difficult. All right, back to Hebrews. All right, verse 15. Therefore, he, being Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. Now this is something that we are familiar with. If I set my last will and testament that says, upon my death, you know, Marcus is going to get my car. You don't want my car, but I'm giving it to you because I think it would be a joke on my way out to, to give you that car. That would be like, ha-ha, sucker. But if I, if I have that in my will, now, as long as I'm alive, whose car is it? It's mine. That doesn't go in effect until my death, at which time it becomes Marcus's. So it's saying the same thing. The new covenant here is like a will and testament. And Jesus made it. And it's not going to go in effect until the person who made it has to die. Now, I I mentioned last week about when it comes to apologetics, and I know what I believe. And when somebody says something stupid, and you know that they're wrong, but you can't think of why they're wrong, and you know you're right, but you can't uh, articulate why you're right, it's very frustrating. So this is years ago. Uh, Me and Jack Farmer, um, we went out to visit somebody who someone else from our church had visited, and they said, you need to go back and talk to these people. And that's literally all we were told. Okay. So we went and knocked on the door and talked to him. Well, this was a, a man and a wife, 
and they are members of the Church of Christ, uh, not not Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, the Church of Christ. Okay, okay. just the Church of Christ. Church of Christ. Yeah. Now the Church of Christ. Anybody know what kind of makes them separate from ooh, us? Ooh, ooh. ooh, go what? They only sing a cappella. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Secondary issue. What? What's the doctrinal they believe, issue? That they separates? believe they can lose, you can lose your salvation. Okay. They believe you can lose your salvation, and they believe that baptism is necessary for sin. That part too. Okay. For sin or for salvation. Right. Yeah. yeah for salvation. Thank you. I just want to say forgiveness of sin. <laughs> Baptism is necessary for the forgiveness of sin and therefore for salvation. Thank you. In yeah. my brain, I said necessary for sin, which is... You did say that. I did say, <laughs> yes, and that came out of my mouth. Okay, in my brain, it was right. It came out all jumbled. So they believe you have to get baptized in order to be saved, period. So if, if you hear that, what's, what's one of the first things that pops in your mind? Thief on the cross. Thief on the cross. And that's, boom, thief on the cross. Well, then he quotes this. Well, that's because Jesus hadn't died yet, so therefore the new covenant wasn't established, so yeah, he didn't have to get baptized. And I was like, oh, you're still not right. Something's you're still right. not right. You're still not right. <laughs> but I couldn't think of it. Okay. And but it he, wasn't until... He died before the thief, so... That's it. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's it. I just could not remember that. I'm like, no, something's not right. Jesus did die before the thief. Because remember, when they were up on the cross, because it was like a, a high Sabbath, they wanted to get them down before sunset. So then when they started breaking all the legs, so they break the first thief's legs, they break the second thief's legs, and they go to break Jesus' legs, and he was already dead. And that's when they stabbed him, and blood and water came out of the side. So the two thieves were still alive, and they broke the legs so they would suffocate to death, because that's what happens in crucifixion. Mm -hmm. Well, Jesus was already dead, so the death had occurred. I couldn't think of that at the moment. It's super annoying. So that's my personal story. <laughs> All right. I stopped reading somewhere. Where did I stop reading? No, I, I finished 17. Finished 17. All right, verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. And I've already touched on this. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. So the first one was inaugurated when Moses sprinkled blood on everything. Saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. So again, to call the old covenant and its sacrificial system a satanic lie or satanic enslavement is, is really undermining the authority of Scripture. I mean, yeah. it, it's just, I don't see how you can in good conscience do that. 21, and in the same way, he being, um, in the same way Moses sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, the Mosaic law, almost everything is purified with blood. And underline this verse if you haven't already. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Verse 23. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, 
but the heavenly things with better sacrifices than these. So if the earthly temple and all of its vessels inside of it were sanctified with animal blood, and it was necessary for that to happen, it's much more so that the true heavenly temple and its vessels be sanctified by something infinitely more valuable than the blood of bulls and goats. See, it had to be sacrificed with, or sanctified with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself up repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, for then he, Christ, would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. And the idea of Christ having to suffer over and over and over for our sins is a ludicrous idea. That, that's what the language implies. That this is a far-fetched idea. It would never be necessary. But as it is, he has appeared how many times? Once. Once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. How? By the sacrifice of himself. By the sacrifice of himself. Yes. Do you, I, th I think, do you think one of the root roots of this Myers dude's uh, heresy is a is a misunderstanding of of, of of sacrifices in the Old Testament system, because I think he I think he's treating it as if the sacrifice itself was an appeasement to God rather than a reminder of your uh, of your sin. You know what I'm saying? That's that's what I think, Marcus, because the Bible says that these are they're a reminder. Yeah. In Hebrews, uh, we actually want to get to it. It says this is a reminder. Yeah, um, look in chapter 10, we'll, we'll get there next week, chapter 10, verse 3. But in these sacrifices, the ones that are apparently a satanic lie and enslavement, religious enslavement, these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. That was the purpose of the sacrifice. Your sins do require death because God is angry at sin, and you're going to do these over and over and over for a thousand years until the Babylonians smash the temple and it's gone. Mm -hmm. You're going to do this to remind yourself, this should be your blood. You broke the covenant. God didn't break the covenant. The fault lies with you. You're going to be reminded of the sin, and it should make you look forward to the ultimate sacrifice that does away with all of that. Yeah, I agree with you. I think he's got a backwards view on what the, what sacrifice meant in the Old Testament. And, and the name of his site is called Redeeming God. And it, it, it seems know, right? like, <laughs> like he wants to redeem. Let's take away anything <laughs> offensive from Christianity. Now he says he's not a universalist. And I will I will okay, if you say you're not a universalist, I'll believe you're not a universalist. But it does seem like you're trying to take away anything that might sound offensive. Because the idea of Christ sending his son to die for other people, you know, it, it that does sound I mean it's it's icky. It's there's no way around it. But yet my my emotional comfort to that fact in no way changes the truth of that fact. Yeah, I, 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 it feels like he also has a misunderstanding of, a gross misunderstanding of um, where, uh, one, the, how people are called to God. You're called to God in part because you realize that 
oh wow, he is judging, he is angry, he's angry with me, mm-hmm. and I deserve it. <laughs> All those things, right? And if you don't understand those things, then, then you don't need a savior. And he's pre- preaching a message where you don't actually need a savior because God's not really angry. He, he's never read Hebrews, first of all, because there's a clear connection that those sacrifices were important for a reason. Mm-hmm. Not that they're wrong. They were important for a reason to point to the most important sacrifice. Yes. And he's really misunderstanding that. And what it sounds like is someone who grew up hearing only the negative that was ever taught to him and preached to him and is trying to make himself feel better about all of the negative he heard. See, I think he probably has studied, but he studied from from not, not a critical as in like, like you know, you got um, textual criticism, you know, the which are just forms of evaluation. I think he probably did study, and he did study the Greek, and, but the thing is is that he studied it with an eye to debunk sister. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, have fun with that, bro. But um, and that's what makes it dangerous, though. That's mm-hmm. what makes it dangerous because he, because like the devil, he can give you a plausible sounding argument. Mm-hmm. All right. So things to point out from this. Again, this is a theme that's come up several times in Hebrews. But how many times did Christ die? Once. 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 And the idea of him dying over and over and over is ridiculous, silly. And this is why I disagree with the Catholic understanding of the Eucharist. I don't believe that every time you break the bread and drink the wine that you're actually participating in a sacrifice of Jesus' body again. You're not literally breaking Jesus' body. You're not literally drinking his blood. He doesn't need to do this over and over. He did it once and for all, and that was sufficient. All right. um, Verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, how many times? Once. Once. Unless you're Lazarus. Unless you're Lazarus. The exception that proves the rule, okay? Because it's miraculous, okay? And after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered, how many times? Once. Once. To bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So again, Christ died one time, and is destined for man to die one time. So now we're going to take a fun little side, yeah, a little sidebar for about ten minutes. This is fun. So when I was in college, I took a um, can't remember Old Testament or New Testament survey. I think it was Old Testament survey. And my teacher, fantastic teacher, wish I could remember his name. One of the best teachers I ever had. Just phenomenal, phenomenal lecturer. Asked great questions but total new age hippie type person. <laughs> and he used the story of Elijah. Okay, remember the story of Elijah, right? Great prophet of God, did miracles, spoke the truth of God, confronted evil, confronted sin, and he was taken up to heaven. And the prophecies, especially related to Messiah, talked about how before Messiah would come, um, Elijah would come again. So everybody's looking for the prophet Elijah, looking for the prophet Elijah. Well, of course, we know from our study of John that who was the fulfillment of this Elijah coming again prophecy? John the Baptist. The Baptist, yes, there's like 15 Johns. Okay, John the Baptist. And he says, so what we see here is that the Bible supports the idea of reincarnation. (laughs) 
And he, he absolutely believed that the Bible taught reincarnation. And most of our class was about the glorious truths found in reincarnation. And again, the guy was a dynamic speaker, very smart, just and fun, and great guy to be around. And that makes him very persuasive. Mm -hmm. So now, how is the idea that John the Baptist is literally Elijah reincarnated stupid? <laughs> John said he wasn't. Okay, John that said he wasn't. <laughs> However, and this guy knew this. He goes, yeah, but right here, Jesus says John was Elijah. John just didn't know. But Jesus, being the great prophet that he was, by the way, uh. did know that John the Baptist was Elijah reincarnated. Well, then we won't know, and we'll find out when we get to heaven. No, that's not a fun answer. <laughs> I mean, from one perspective, you would argue, wow, that's a jip for Elijah. A faithful servant called up to heaven and got to come back. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and to die by beheading. Yeah, right, 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 right. So spend years in, in prison, according to the biblical narrative, and then die by beheading mm -hmm. because, you know, Herod's, Herod's wife is trifling. Did Elijah ever die? No, okay, so let's say it's okay, sure. John the Baptist is is Elijah. That still would not prove reincarnation. Because reincarnation teaches that upon your death, whatever judges you based on your good or bad karma. And then you are reborn based on that. So if you're born into an aristocratic family or wealthy family, then obviously you've lived enough life and you've built up goodness. If you're born dirt poor, then it's because of your bad karma that you generated in your life, and this is part of your punishment. You have to work off your bad karma, if you will. And if you're born a member of the priestly caste, well, that means you are this far away from reaching nirvana, which is the annihilation of yourself and you become one with the universe. All this hippie stuff is... Or a grunge band from the 90s. Yes. Yes. Kurt Cobain, anybody? Anybody? No? Okay. Gotta work with them. Just me and Marcus. Just me and Marcus. All right. <laughs> well, you gotta at least speak up so we don't feel completely alone, Jamie. I don't know who Nirvana is. As far as I know, it's only an Eastern mystic. Anyway. So, even if John the Baptist were actual Elijah, it does not prove reincarnation because Elijah never died. So you can even, you can say, fine, I'll give you that. John the Baptist was literally Elijah. Doesn't prove reincarnation the way you describe reincarnation. And the, wouldn't he have to be like better or worse than he was to get? They're both similar. They both lived in the I wilderness. Know, they, they, they wandered around. There's a myth. But once you die, like based on your works, you go up or down. You don't typically stay the same. <laughs> Do-over. No, um, there's like a, a myth that Lazarus didn't die again either. And he's wandered around keeping it low-key 2,000 years later. The Mormons believe that John is still alive. I'm kind of okay with that. Like, let's just... <laughs> that would be kind of dope, though. <laughs> Surprise, Hydros has been there the whole time. He's that clerk at the Quickie Mart. <laughs> he makes a mean falafel now. <laughs> But the Mormons believe, yeah, the Mormons believe the Apostle John 
is still alive today. Because remember when he uh, he told Peter that you're going to die by being crucified upside down? He didn't mm -hmm. say it verbatim, but that's what he said. Mm -hmm. And Peter's like, yeah, but what about John? And, well, if I want him to stay alive till I come back, what's that to you? Well, they say John is staying alive until Jesus comes back. So he's walking around somewhere, too. That's unfortunate because he, we know from the scripture he did age. So... You know what I'm saying? He was like in his 90s when he when he wrote Revelation, and he lived city miles life. You know what I mean? So that'd be that'd be kind of rough. That'd be rough. So, but the the point of of telling you that that story about reincarnation from my very charismatic teacher, whom I like very much, like I said, he was a great guy, very good teacher, and the idea of God not being angry at sin and the sacrifice system was satanic lie to entrap you in religion. I want you to understand why some people dig deep into scripture. It's because there are knuckleheads out there who are digging deep into scripture and coming to very, very bad, very wrong, very destructive conclusions. Mm. And I want all of you to be able to know what you believe and why you believe it, and I want you to know the dumb stuff that's out there. I can't tell you all the dumb stuff's out there because there's a lot of it, but I can show you some examples, and usually they're all variations on the theme. A lot of it is Eastern religions wrapped up with language similar to what Christians do. And they know stories about Elijah and John the Baptist. They know what Jesus said, and they can use all of these passages of scripture out of context and, and make you believe something that simply isn't true when you look at scripture as a whole. Like Jamie said, the only way you can say that the blood really doesn't earn you forgiveness of sins, Jesus' blood doesn't wash away your sins and God's not angry at sins, as if you don't, if you don't read Hebrews <laughs> in its entirety. But that's what the entire book is about, how the old served its purpose but it's now been surpassed by that which is better. And what made us go from the old to the superior new was the shedding of Christ's blood. It's, it's kind of a big deal. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, this guy's theory undermines that. It, it devalues the blood of Christ. Sure. Does anybody have any questions or comments? Anything that makes Christ smaller is wrong. Just start there. And see, he would argue he's not. He's just trying to de-emphasize a pagan-influenced idea in Christianity. He doesn't see himself. Oh, yeah. I mean, but the villain never thinks he's a villain. Um, but anything that makes Christ smaller, start there. You can go do your homework. Start with it's wrong, and then go do your homework. And that's, that's <laughs> go do your homework. Did I finish chapter 9? I did. So the last verse, Christ has been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear again a second time. This is, of course, the perusia, the second coming of Christ. And he's not coming to deal with sin because that's already been dealt with on the cross by the shedding of his blood because God was angry at sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And, that is, and that's the description for all Christians. We should be eagerly anticipating and waiting for the glorious return of Christ. All right, if there are no further questions, then I will see each of you next week.